Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Like some food for thought? Tune in to Radical Philosophy with discussions on freedom, happiness, knowledge, evil and rational argument. With words from Midgley, Caputi, Adams, Stewart, Wolf, and Hagen Gruber. Let's get radical about philosophy. If all men are born free, how is it that all women are born slaves? Mary Astell. Hi, this is Dana Goswick from the University of Melbourne. I'm here with 3CR Community Radio 855, and I love to listen to Radical Philosophy. And I'm speaking to Professor Margaret Atherton about women philosophers of the early modern period. Welcome to the program. Thank you. Now, could you tell us a little bit about yourself? Well, let's see. I'm actually I'm an historian early modern philosophy more generally. Most of my work has been done on 18th century thinkers, in particularly Locke and Berkeley. Um, so the work that I've done on the early modern women has been a kind of sideline for me. I teach at the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee, mm-hmm. the branch of the University of Wisconsin. In Milwaukee, not surprisingly. All right. <laughs> and what was it that inspired your interest in women philosophers of the early modern period? Well, you know, I've been trying to remember when I first started looking into this because it was quite a while ago now, and I think it was probably sometime in the late 80s that I first started wondering about women who might have been writing philosophy during this period. There had been quite a lot of work by that time about women with feminists interest in that period. So I sort of knew that there was a potential for such work, and I knew about Mary Astle, for example, because of her feminist books that had begun to receive some attention. And I just got curious about whether or not it might be possible to find women writing in philosophy more generally. You have to understand, when I first started looking at this, that many of the research possibilities that are now widely available today on the internet, for example, were not available. This was a much more primitive time, even though it wasn't that long ago. And so my first attempt at research was to go to a research library in Chicago with which my university had an affiliation, the Newbury Library. And I did something which now is also an almost obsolete practice. I went through their card catalog and I looked for the names of women authors who might have been writing on philosophical topics. And then when I found something, I asked them to bring me the book. And so uh, by this extremely primitive means, I was able to uncover, to my great delight, 
a number of women who were indeed writing perfectly recognizable philosophical treatises on the same topics that I had been studying with the more familiar male authors. So that's how I got started on this project. Now, there's quite a few women that you've written about. We'll start with Princess Elizabeth of Bohemia. Could you give us a bit of background about her and and tell us about her philosophy? Princess Elizabeth is an interesting case because she was, in fact, a member of a noble family of, of dispossessed German princelings living in exile in Holland. So because of her social position. She, first of all, had had an extremely extensive education, which was rare um, for women in that period. And she was also able, because of her social position, one surmises, to be able to enter into a correspondence with the much more well-known philosopher, René Descartes, who was living in Holland at that time and who was happy to enter into an exchange of letters with her. So on the one hand, because of her social position, she was, she was able to you know, attract the attention of, of well-known philosophers. She wrote to Malbranche as well, although not quite as lengthily. But also because of her social position, she was really not in a position to, do, to seriously engage in written study. I mean, it's clear she's constantly being called upon to engage in in one enterprise or another to do with her family situation. So what we have from, from Princess Elizabeth are some very, very interesting letters, but we really don't know what she might have been able to to write had she lived in different circumstances. Yes, and there's also Margaret Cavendish, Duchess of Newcastle. Yes. Now, that's another. She's a, she's a fascinating person. She was the second wife of the Duke of Newcastle, who was an important political figure at that time. She actually met him when she was in exile on the continent due to the turmoil in, in England at that time period due to her husband's encouragement and the fact that his family, the Cavendishes, were very involved with other intellectuals of the time. Thomas Hobbes is an example. She was able to acquire a considerable education in the issues of the time And thanks to her husband's encouragement, she wrote a number of treatises, all of which were published. So she, again, was sort of lucky in her particular set of circumstances. And what we have from her is a series of really interesting thoughts about how to understand the metaphysics of nature. She was very much opposed to the purely mechanical account that she would have been familiar with from Hobbes of the material world. She thought that didn't make any sense at all um, and developed a more elaborate 
kind of account of a sort of series of living beings of, from which you could derive a sense of activity that to her made much more sense as a way of understanding the natural world. And there was Anne Viscountess Conway of Newcastle? Anne Conway, again, was lucky. She was lucky. She was very close to her brother, who studied at Cambridge under Henry Moore, a very well-known philosopher of the period. Her brother introduced her to her husband, Viscount Conway, but also to Henry Moore. And through Henry Moore, she received a kind of correspondence course in contemporary philosophy. She also became somewhat later interested through a man called Francis Mercury von Helmont in some more complicated kind of chemical theory, some of which derived from the Kabbalah, which was important to a number of people. So what we have from her is a treatise that she wrote and was subsequently translated by Van Helmont into Latin and then translated back into English. It's a much more organized treatise than the kinds of works that we got from Margaret Cavendish and very thoroughly grounded theoretically and metaphysically in an account of that categories in nature which are either changeless or changeable. So it's a very careful and well thought out kind of theory. And Damaris Cudworth, Lady Marshall? Yes. Now, is that the right pronunciation? Oh, you know, I I make it up. Oh, okay. (laughs) (laughs) Never having met any of these ladies, I never know for sure. (laughs) But that's how we all seem to be working with it now. Oh, good. Um, Demers Masham was the daughter of Ralph Cudworth, who was another very well-known philosopher at Cambridge, along with Henry Moore. So she was a person who grew up around philosophical ideas and took her father's ideas very seriously. When she was a relatively young woman, she met John Locke and entered into a kind of friendship with Locke, although when Locke went into exile, I mean, we have no idea how what sort of a friendship it was. We can you know, speculate, but, but there's, no, there's nothing to go on. When Locke had to go into exile due to further political complications in England, she married Francis Masham, who was a man older than herself, with grown children, and then had had a son with him. When Locke returned from exile, they, re, they reinstituted their friendship, and in fact, when Locke's health began to fail and London no longer was a good place for him to live, she persuaded him to come and live in the Masham country residence as a, as a kind of tenant, which was, of course, delightful for her because it meant that all of the 
important thinkers in England came to visit Locke, and her life picked up a whole lot from that of a rather uh, dreary resident in a, in a country environment. While Locke was living with her, she wrote two treatises, one occasional thoughts um, with reference to virtuous life, which worried, in the same way that Mary Astle did, about the English Malbranchian John Norris's claim that the only deserving object of our love was God. So she argued against that claim and in favor of a more inclusive love. And a second book in which she was paying more attention to educational matters. It's been a a sorrow to me that her two books, The Discourse Concerning the Love of God and the Occasional Thoughts in Reference to a Virtuous Christian Life, among the very few that have not yet received contemporary editions, I think this is a great injustice and a big pity. And I think that Nashim has been unduly neglected, probably, because it is more complicated to read her works. Yes, and there's also Catherine Trotter-Coburn. Ah. She's, you know, I keep saying this, but it's really true. They're all really fascinating women. I mean, which I guess is predictable that women who should do something sufficiently unusual as to write philosophy would be fascinating people. One of the things that is worth noticing about Catherine Trotter Coburn is that unlike the earlier um, 17th century women, she was not a great lady. She was, you know, a sort of comfortable middle-class kind of person. Her father was a sea captain who was sadly lost at sea. The family fell on hard times, and she first tried to revive the family fortunes by writing plays. Her first written works were plays. But we also find that during the period when she was trying to make a living for her family writing plays, she was also engaged in um, what's clearly an intellectual circle of interested readers and thinkers up you know in her in in her time and it was while she was kind of exchanging views about the books that she was reading and all that she started publishing commentaries on philosophical topics so that for example she published a response to some somebody who was at the time anonymous who had written some critical remarks about John Locke's essay, which was recently published, the news in, in which she takes issue with some of this remarker, as she called him, the, the, the anonymous critic. She takes issue with his criticisms of Locke's theory of personal identity, as well as some of Locke's speculations on moral issues. Locke discovered that she was the author of 
of this defense and wrote her a nice letter and made her a present of some books, at which point she married a clergyman. She had a family, and during that period, she published little more, but assuming that her her children grew up, she then re-engaged in publication. Again, her approach was to write comments or refutations of the works of others, but in the course of these, she developed some more complicated kinds of views about issues concerning natural religion and natural morality. You're listening to Radical Philosophy on Radio 3CR, and I'm speaking to Professor Margaret Atherton about women philosophers of the early modern period. Now, it was interesting how all the women that you've spoken about seem to come from quite a, well, middle-class or upper-class upbringing, but she mentioned right. about Catherine Trotter-Coburn and how she didn't come from that background. But was it originally that her father did have a, a bit of a fortune, but he lost it? So would you say that that was a bit of an, an effect on her early education? Well, it's sort of hard to know because we don't know a whole lot about her early education. I mean, I think... What we have to think about with respect to Catherine Trotter Coburn, um, and this would be similar to Mary Astle, for example, who is similarly, you know, not an aristocrat, not a great lady, but instead someone from the, I don't know how you'd want to put it, the educated middle class. But I think that one thing that becomes clear when we look at both of those women's lives is the extent to which at that time period they were able to form a part of a group of interested readers and thinkers, all of them not necessarily publishing, but exchanging ideas with one another. Um, So there's clearly, you know, the possibility for intellectual work for middle class and upper middle class women at that time and communities that they could be a part of. And there was also Lady Mary Shepherd. Yeah, Lady Mary Shepherd is actually somewhat out of the early modern period. She's an early 19th century thinker, but her work fits most closely into the work of other early modern thinkers because of the way in which I think following upon the tradition of Scottish philosophy at her time, she was herself born and raised in Scotland, there was an intense interest in the kinds of consequences and responses to Hume and before Hume Berkeley by Scottish thinkers like Reed and then Stuart and, and Thomas Brown. So the kinds of topics that she talks about are ones that reflect back to the early modern period, and she wrote heavily on, on Hume and also on Berkeley. And would you be able to give us some background on Mary Astor, because we, we have actually mentioned her a couple of times? 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, she's also a she's a kind of mysterious figure because what we know about her is that she arrived as a single woman and an adult in London. How she got there, how she set herself up, how she supported herself is not immediately clear. However, it does seem that she did establish herself among a group of women, largely, and she engaged very vigorously in publication. Um, she wrote quite a lot. The sort of feminist works that, that I mentioned previously, you know, a, a serious proposal to the ladies and her reflections on marriage, but she also wrote a good deal about the kind of area of overlap of, of philosophy and theology. She was a very conservative Christian woman, and she also, like Damas Masham, engaged with the ideas of John Norris, who suggested that their correspondence be published. So do you have any future study plans within this field? Not so much, actually, within the, the early modern period. I've written some stuff on Mary Shepard, you know, but by now lots of other people are doing really fascinating and very rich work in this whole general area. I know you've talked to Jackie Broad, who's done wonderful work recently on Mary Astle, and so finally people are, you know, are beginning to write substantial books on the women as well as, as numerous articles. For myself, I've actually been playing with a slightly different project. I've been looking at, uh, I, I started to wonder what the situation of women was in philosophy when philosophy at the beginning, at end of the 19th, early 20th century, became professionalized, became located firmly in universities, became credentialized with a PhD, um, had professional journals with which you established yourself as a, you know, as a, as a professional philosopher. And I thought, well, does that discourage women or, or, or what? And I started to look at the major journals of the time, which are still important journals, journals like Mind and, and Philosophical Review, and I discovered that there were actually lots of women who were publishing in these journals. So, so the current project that I'm, that I'm starting to work on, it, it's not a very project that's very far along, is to try to collect some of the work of of those women um, and see if we can start looking at women in a, in a different period in philosophy. Well, thank you very much for coming onto the program today. Well, you're very welcome. Yes, very worthwhile work there, and I've been speaking to Professor Margaret Atherton about women philosophers of the early modern period. You're listening to Radical Philosophy on 3CR. 8.55 on your AM dial. I'm Christine Overall. I'm a professor emerita of philosophy and university research chair 
at Queen's University in Kingston, Ontario, Canada. You've been listening to Radical Philosophy on Radio 3CR, 855 on your AM dial. Hope you've enjoyed the program. I've certainly enjoyed your company.